Sci-Fix. Welcome to Sci-Fix, everybody. Welcome back. Hello. Uh, this is episode three. Uh, we're calling it Double Double Toil and Trouble. Uh, because the author this week is the one and only Robert Anson Heinlein. We're doing his first Hugo-winning novel, Double Star. And to introduce some background into this interesting and fascinating character, uh, we're going to let Katie yeah. tell us about a seance that was performed when he died. This is honestly so funny. So, you know, Heinlein won, well, a lot of Hugos, but he won four Hugo Awards, and then retroactively, when they started giving those out, he won, like, seven more. So I believe he's the... He has the most winning books, right? He does, yeah. He's got, yeah. I think, by far, actually. Yeah. Uh, he may not actually have the most in number, but he's got the most for novels. I'm mm -hmm. sure of that. Oh, yeah, that's right, because they're short stories and stuff. Um, yeah. But, yeah, he's got a bunch. So this is his first one. The book that we read this time is Double Star. Um, Highland himself has been uh, praised as one of the first science fiction authors. One of the first, not, you know, the only one. But uh, to emphasize scientific accuracy, so that kind of goes back to uh, what we talked about with hard and soft science fiction last time. Definitely. He's very much known as like a hard science fiction author. Um, Double Star doesn't really get into it too deep, but I'm, I guess, assuming that some of his later works does. Right. Um, they definitely do. Uh, the, harsh, the, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress, um, Stranger in a Strange Land. And um, the one will one of his that we'll be dealing with next, uh, Starship Troopers, is very much a hard edge sci-fi military in space kind of thing. So kind of set it's the stage for read that because yeah. I I don't yeah. know I've never read anything like that as far as like a military book goes to my knowledge. So yeah, that'll be it's, interesting. It's not my cup of tea generally, but uh, we'll see how we feel about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but um, yeah. In particular, I wanted to tell this really funny story that was uh, the introduction to the audiobook I listened to, Double Star. So, <laughs> when Double Star was nominated for the Hugo Award, um, no one, like, told Highland at all. So, <laughs> he had no idea that he was even nominated for this award. He was just trying to do his, his thing, you know, get copies of this published or whatever. So, when it ended up winning, he wasn't even at the convention when it won in, I think, 1956. Right. So, one of his friends, a guy named Forrest Ackerman, who apparently is a writer and, uh, I guess, editor. Yes, writer and editor. Mm -hmm. uh, he accepted the award on Highland's behalf. Well, when Highland found out about this, which, by the way, he got the award like in the mail a, a year later. Like, he had, he just, like, opened his mailbox. I was like, oh, hey, here's a Hugo. That's pretty cool. He's like, when did I win this thing? Yeah, like, what is this? So, you know, I guess him and Ackerman had a discussion, and Highland was really salty about it because he had no idea that he won this award. He did not give consent for Ackerman to uh, accept the award in his stead, you know? Right. Um, so he was just kind of mad at the situation, apparently, causing tension between the two of them. Well... Mm. When Highland died in 1988, his family and close friends decided to get together and hold a seance, because I guess that's what you do when you have... You know, money. when your when you're science fiction writing friend or family member dies, what do you do? You have a seance. Tim, please don't have a seance when I die. I really don't know if I have okay. a to stay. Yeah, I mean, okay. you'd be like, 
I'm really hungry, and there's no good restaurants here. You know. I probably just try to scare you guys like it's so cold and dark, and I'm alone. Boo! And then you'd be like, JK. <laughs> Never mind. No, but, we, won't, well, we won't do that, I promise. Okay, that's all I, I needed to know that. So, <laughs> when they held the seance, uh, Ackerman, for some reason that I do not understand, was invited to this. I guess they patched things up <laughs> in the later years. Ackerman was invited, though. So he asked the psychic, because uh, in to ask Highland, I guess, you know, like, hey, Highland, how do you feel about the Hugo? I guess just trying to mess with Highland after death. Um, right. And the psychic, you know, responded on Highland's behalf, like, Highland, uh, like, yeah, Highland's a bit confused by this question. Uh, so that alone apparently completely ruined the psychic's career because oh, no. Ackerman and everyone involved knew that like Highland probably feels a certain way about the Hugo. Like I would no imagine way, so, yeah. Even in after death, he would have something to say about it. So this poor psychic lost. Well, I guess not poor psychic. as she was profiting off of people's misery, but <laughs> right, like most of them do. because of Highland and the Hugo Awards. So. Oh well. That's where we stand. If you, you know, if you ask Heinlein a question, you're not going to get he's confused by it. You're going to get some kind of definitive answer that he definitely believed. So, I guess anybody that was involved with that would have known right away, you are full of crap, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Even <laughs> you are not a psychic. something to say. Guys? Yeah, definitely. And that doesn't sound out of character for him at all. Uh, he had feuds with lots of writers. Um and was apparently known to hold grudges for decades, so, um, <laughs> it's funny, but it's kind of sad in a way. No, it is, it's interesting. I yeah, guess, like, definitely. with Ackerman, they did, like, patch things up if he was invited to his seance eventually, but... I mean, if he was I dead, he really couldn't tell him not to come. <laughs> that's true, that's very true. Uh, what I was reading, Highland was very agitated at the fact that he did not know a thing about this Right. Star winning a Hugo, because that's a big deal, you know? Right. But I think we've talked about before, uh, is that in these early years, it wasn't as big of a deal as it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, this was only the third one that had been um, awarded. Mm-hmm. So he might not have even been interested or cared about the thing at the time. But then when he found out he won, then he was, you know, he might have been interested then. But yeah, it, it, it's very possible that he completely forgot about it and then was up in arms later on for no reason at all, probably because he just forgot. Mm-hmm. And uh, who knows? Who knows what really happened? That's an interesting story. I like that. It was a pretty fun one. It was a good way to introduce the story of Double Star. Double Star, Hugo winner for 1956. Uh, let me give you a quick plot summary of this uh, very interesting book. Uh, there is an actor named Lawrence Smythe. Some people might say Smith. I say Smythe. A.K.A. the Great Lorenzo, as he's known to himself. I don't know if anybody else calls him that, but that's what his business card says. Uh, he's hired by representatives of a major political party uh, to impersonate its leader, John Joseph Bonfort. And he's sitting in a bar. Uh, we don't know why he's there or whether he meant to be there or uh, if he just happened to be there when these people show up or was it planned. We don't know. Anyway, they come to him, they don't give him a reason at first, but he decides to do it. You know, as one does when shady people come into a bar and ask you to do a job. Yeah, I'll do that, sure. Yeah, sure. (laughs) 
Uh, in the process, he is nearly killed several times, gets adopted into a Martian family clan, he's hypnotized several times, nearly kidnapped, and gets to meet the Emperor. And hijinks ensue. So, With that is... summary alone, it, would, it sounds like a great reality TV show. It almost does, you know? You know? It, this could be like Adventures of the Kardashians in space. Yes. So... <laughs> <laughs> they get adopted into the Martian clan and get to meet the Emperor. That's right. <laughs> and then Kanye comes over and everybody has a fun time. Anyway. So there were some other nominees for 1956. Nobody knew them for the long, longest time because, you know, they didn't really keep good records of these things back in the day. But Hugo winner Joe Walton, who I've been reading along as we've been doing this podcast for Informal History of the Hugos, was able to track these down, there were several others. Uh, Call Him Dead by Eric Frank Russell was one of them. The End of Eternity by Isaac Asimov. There's a name we've heard. Not This August by Cyril Kornbluth. And The Long Tomorrow by Lee Brackett, which that, that final one is actually the first woman who was nominated uh, for the Hugo Award. So those... No, Lee Brackett was uh, a woman, actually. I, I know. It's interesting, That's isn't cool. it? Yeah. Um, that's, this is an aside, it really doesn't have anything to do with it, but one of our co-workers, we were talking about Andre Norton the other day, and she didn't realize that Andre Norton was a woman. So, I thought you know, that was honestly, fun, too. It's interesting, though, I wonder if, like, uh, gender-neutral kind of names, I mean, that's their name, I guess, I guess they didn't choose, you know, Andre Norton or Lee Brackett, but... It's, it's bad that I assume that it's probably a man, you know what I mean? Right. Well, a lot of them did do that. Um, I think Andre Norton's middle name was Andre. I, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure her her first given name was a more traditionally female name. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what it is right off the top of my head. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of them did that just because they knew they were getting to, into a boys club at that time, and they wanted to make a name for themselves, and... I suppose, but the only way they could have done it was, you know, to just play that I'm a guy card. So, mm-hmm. anyway. Um, so, that's just an interesting aside. So, it was up against some some pretty stiff competition that year, and it, and it beat all of them, so it must be a pretty good book. Uh, there, are, there are some themes that uh, we could talk about in this book, quite a few, and if there's anything you want to add, Katie, let me know. Because we could go on all night about uh, the themes going on in this book. Anything you want to start out with before we actually just jump right into it? I do, actually. So I think a good uh, jumping into just kind of the themes and the characters would be, I really wanted to read the first line of the book because it's <laughs> Go ahead, it do it. It tells you everything you need to know about, I guess, Dak himself, one of the characters. So, Dak Broadbent, uh, yes. Yep. So... Lorenzo, the great Lorenzo, is like sitting in the bar, like Tim mentioned, and the very first line of this book is, if a man walks in dressed like a hick and acting as if he owns the place, he is a space fan. Yeah. <laughs> Which I just I, think is incredible. <laughs> yep, that's pretty much, if you if you read that line to any science fiction fan, they probably would say, yeah, Robert Heinlein wrote that. Because it just sounds like it could have been in any of his books. Mm-hmm. So that's fantastic. Um, very blunt and very just like this is what you're getting into. <laughs> this is what you're getting into. A very lively, flowing, fun, breezy prose style that's easy to follow. He doesn't get bogged down in uh, 
deep philosophical ideas the way that that we kind of had to deal with in the last book mm-hmm. um, that didn't go anywhere um, but and with as much fun as that can be you know I love science fiction for that reason it's very right. philosophical times this was just entertaining which was such a breath of fresh air after our other book they'd rather be right it this was. was actually fun it this was a fun book like just a fun wild ride like definitely I a fun book the events that are unfolding right <laughs> a fun book, but at the same time, it did have some very deep ideas, and we can talk about those. Mm-hmm. The first thing I kind of wanted to mention was that Lorenzo, Lawrence, Larry, whatever you want to call him, he's got he's got a lot of names, and he gets a lot more names as, as the book goes on. He is a very, in his own mind at least, a very famous actor. So... When I was reading this, and I'd never, I'd never read this particular book by Heinlein before, I immediately thought, if he is such a good actor, he knows how to lie, he knows how to exaggerate, prevaricate, uh, improvise, fool people, use slight tricks to, to, to change people's minds without so much as a thought. Um, right off the bat, I think this guy is an unreliable narrator. I can't really believe anything he says, even if he is entertaining. He's very entertaining. Um, so, he's egotistical. He won't allow anything to blemish his reputation. And this is one of the great things about Heinlein. Within just a few pages, he's kind of pulled us into his corner and said, okay, we're all Lorenzo fans because, you know, he can just talk a blue streak and talk about anything and schmooze anybody and right away he takes up this job you know he, he kind of pretends like oh I don't want to do that I'm, I'm not interested in that I have professional standards etc but what is your offer sir and he takes it up um, without really much forethought I don't think so one of the questions I had um, he says he doesn't like politics he doesn't like Martians he's he's really kind of a racist <laughs> Um, so honestly, early on. But at the same time, we know he's unreliable. And I was thinking, is it possible that he's straight up lying to the, the reader about not knowing about this beforehand and not wanting to do it? And is he trying to create a narrative around himself so that we'll be pulled along with his story? Who knows? Um, it's cool thinking of it that way, too, because yeah. you know, we're, we're given no other information aside from he isn't this far. Yep. This other man walks into this bar, and it's just literally the way it's presented to us. It's like, oh, what a matter of fate. What a matter of chance. Wow, look at that. This guy just showed up here. Yes, yeah. And later on, you find out, though, that Jack has had his eye on him for quite some time. Yep. You know, yep. so he kind of knew where he would hang out as well. So He's being, he's been tracked. Yeah. Now, we find, we don't know that right away, but we find that out later. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the way that Lorenzo presents himself, you have to think, Good grief, this guy's... He's a really good actor. He's hes easy at pulling the wool over people's eyes. Or at least he thinks he is. Mm-hmm. Good at making the reader think that he's like that. So, a good actor, I think, can create a believable backstory without trying really hard. So, who knows? Who knows? Interesting. And what better character to play the role of a politician, too? Exactly. <laughs> Somebody Perfect. that can, you know, put on a new face without much effort and and lie without batting an eyelash and exaggerate and tell 
tall tales till the, till the cows come home, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. Just an interesting character all around, I think. Mm-hmm. He's a lot of fun. Any other Lorenzo ideas you want to talk about? I like the fact, uh, you know, thinking about him as an unreliable character, but as you get further on into the story, too, it's like he is, like, almost so... He's almost unreliable to himself. And that's yes. really crazy to start reading and start seeing his, like, uh, like, character evolution, I guess. Because at the end of the book, he is like, who am I even? Who the like, heck I am I? tricked myself and everyone else to the point right? of being like, am I even me anymore? Exactly. This performance of a lifetime has truly changed his entire life. Exactly. And it brings up... Now, see, we were talking about philosophical ideas in, in science fiction. This is a good one, and Heinlein doesn't have to stretch anything really far to, to think about it. He gets so invested in this character, at least as far as we know. We, I mean, whether it's been set up beforehand or not, really doesn't make that much difference. But he's so invested in this character that he gradually does start to become John Joseph Blumford, who is he's supposedly... Uh, impersonating, but we start seeing him as Bonford, and he starts taking on these these quirks and mannerisms of Bonford. It's like, well, wait a minute, I don't think that the old man would say something that way. I'm going to change this speech, and uh, you know, the his handlers are like, what are we doing with this guy? He can't just change things like that. Well, I think that's what he would do, so I'm going to do that. So, if you know. If one's not careful, one starts to take on these roles and one becomes those roles. So that's just interesting, I thought. So there's a lot of stuff to do with sex and gender in this book, too. And we talked about that with um, Alfred Bester's book and Clifton and Riley's book. But in those books, they had female characters that were not completely fleshed out. Uh, They were more two-dimensional than anything. They were... You know, the, the, in the last book we read, Mabel was almost there, but she wasn't quite a full-fledged character. Mm-hmm. But in this book, uh, there's a character named Penny Russell. She is one of the most interesting characters in the book, I think. A professional woman with a master's degree. Uh, but the problem is, Heinlein insists on giving her stereotypical 1950s female attitudes. And I'm just it infuriates me why he just didn't go that extra mile and write a little bit more for her. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. wanted to... Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, yeah, well, just to add to that, it was super frustrating, like we talked about prior to this, too. It was like, she is finally, like, a strong, you know, intelligent female character in this older science fiction novel. Yes. But there's this little thing about her where she gets way too emotionally invested and cries a lot. And, oh, like, is head yeah. over heels for, you know, bond for it. Like... Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's yeah, it, she shows weakness, but Too like much not weakness, even, I think. And it's not even like a part of her character. It's like she's so much more than that and that's what we're given, but then she has to show like these super weak soft Exactly. Moments. Exactly. Let me let me read from um, a description of her that when Lorenzo starts reading through the Farley files, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, the the files that Bonford kept on everybody that he ever met, so that if he met them again, he would know about them. So the Farley file for Penny uh, read, The Honorable Miss Penelope Taliaferro Russell. She was an MA in government administration from Georgetown and a BA from Wellesley. 
which somehow did not surprise me. She represented districtless university women, another safe constituency, I learned, since they're about five to one expansionist party members. On down below were her glove size, her other measurements, her preferences in colors. I could teach her something about dressing. Her preferences is in scent, jungle lust, of course, and many other details, most of, most of them innocuous enough. But there was comment, quote, neurotically honest, arithmetic unreliable, prides herself on her sense of humor, of which she has none, watches her diet, but is gluttonous about candied cherries, Little mother of all living complex, unable to resist reading the printed word in any form. So, you can see in that description that she's a well-rounded character. She's got all of the necessary attributes to be a full-fledged character, but for some reason he just doesn't allow her to become one. Um, that's probably... I don't know. I, I imagine there's some residual anti-feminism in Heinlein because he was coming up in that time. Mm -hmm. Science fiction was a boys' club for the most part, with a few exceptions. I think we talked about a few of them. But she's just not allowed to be herself. And he gives her these... Yes, she's the little mother that wants to be loving for all creatures, and she's emotional, and like you said, head over heels for Bonford, and there's no reason for that. It's just, it's just really disappointing. That's just one aspect I didn't like, but I really liked her character. Yeah, her character is great, and in, you know, doing my research a little bit on Heinlein, too, like, I was reading about how a lot of people say he was so, like, progressive uh, for the time with, like, his use of, like, race and, like, yes. uh, women characters, and, like, he was, you know, really trying to be more inclusive. He um, did, yeah. But, but like you said, it, it's definitely where you can see, like, he's trying, you know, and I don't want to completely give him, like, good job, you know, like a card for that. Uh, good job, Heinlein, you had a woman character. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's like, this is, this is the right direction, but still. He's not there yet. Yeah. He's not there yet, exactly. Yep, yep. yep. And to, I mean, and it's not his fault, and, and he was definitely way ahead of a lot of people in that field, so he did at least try. Yeah. So, yeah, but we still have that, you know, she's, she's meek and mild and will fade into the background when the big boys are having their discussion. And She's emotionally I'll, driven, she gets right. petty and angry, you know, because right. Lorenzo is not Bonfort and she loves Bonfort and it's hard to see Lorenzo playing this character. Right, but as time goes on, we notice, and he makes her into this flighty character, um, she's fickle because she begins to fall for Lorenzo because he's so much like Bonfort. So, which is kind of disappointing to see that too. Like, why is she, why is she being fooled by this? I don't understand. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, I guess I guess Lorenzo was just that good of an actor. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. So you mentioned race. Um, oh, yeah. That's an, that's another thing, and there's a lot of that here. Mm -hmm. um, Heinlein himself was a staunch libertarian, and I, we're not going to get into politics in our podcast, um, one way or the other. But he called himself a rational anarchist, um, which was the belief that political parties don't exist except as far as two uh, willful individual people come together and make an arrangement. Um, so he, he, wasn't, he wasn't political the way we would understand politics today. Um, but he was at least committed to the idea of racial harmony and equal rights. Um, now, what that meant to him in the 1950s might be very different what it means to us now. 
but he was ahead of the curve as far as, you know, uh, racial ideas, um, and definitely ahead of the curve as to what was going on in the 50s. So, um, but Lorenzo, at the beginning, Lorenzo is what we would call a racist now. Um, yeah, he does not like Martians at all. He hates and there's, there's literally a part in the very beginning where he is talking to, probably Dak, but he's talking to him, he's like, I'm not racist, but I'm not racist, but are. It's like that, that's the sentence, that's, those are the phrases right? you don't Exa- say. <laughs> exactly. Well, you definitely wouldn't say them now, but no. that's almost as bad as saying, I have black friends, but... It solidifies it, yeah, the fact that right. you're a racist. <laughs> it, it, it definitely does. It definitely you know? does. And... Uh, <laughs> But he and he he he, I mean they're they're not human they're Martian but he dehumanizes them by saying they're not intelligent creatures they're animals they're things they're not people, um, but it's fairly clear to me at least in the narrative arc of the story that Heinlein doesn't agree with Lorenzo. Mm-hmm. Heinlein feels like Martians need to be included in the Empire, um, whether Lorenzo likes it or not he's just going to have to get over it. So. Um, but Lorenzo doesn't like Martians at first. He has to be hypnotized into believing that Martians are okay. And the first time he's hypnotized, he he's very physically repulsed by them. He doesn't like their smell. Uh, so the hypnotist says, well, we can fix that easily. So uh, the name of Penny's perfume is Jungle Lust. So <laughs> it's very distinctive, apparently. And so after he's hypnotized, he comes to associate it uh, with the smell of Martians, so it's it's got a very positive connotation. So he's he's able to sidestep that problem by being hypnotized, but he gradually does accept um, the fact that Martians are okay, despite the fact that one of them tried to kill him earlier in the book. Yeah, so. <laughs> that was really. Duck was like, no, that's not. He's not even really that bad of a Martian. Most of them are really nice. Yeah, I've had some really good chess games with him before. So. <laughs> Um, because Lorenzo was, you know, the whole reason why they wanted him to play this Bonport character is because he had to literally go to, I guess, Mars to meet the Martians. Right, um, right. And to, like, uh, be adopted into their like, society, I guess. Into their nest, yeah. Into yeah. nests, that's right. So, um, he calls them nests. And this, this whole thing is very interesting um, to me from the race perspective. So, when Bonfort gets to Mars... He, not Bonfort, sorry, when Lorenzo gets to Mars, he has to fully adopt uh, the persona of Bonfort. They drive him to the nest of the family that he's going to be uh, initiated into, and, and they think he's Bonfort. They don't know he's Lorenzo. So he goes to the place, and the way that Lorenzo describes it sounds very much to me like uh, a white savior type of person going into the jungle in Africa in the, the 19th century and saying, I am here as a representative of my people. And all the kids are, are milling around him and he's patting them on the heads and being he's very patronizing. Like, and Oh yeah, like, he's got like the, the, the dress on, like the, the robes yeah, or like yeah, the, the like attire I, of the... I played it up all exactly as I was supposed to and it was very formal and stylized and we did all the dances and... I became one of them because it was necessary, because in order for them to be accepted into our empire, we have to accept them. So it did, it just felt a little bit colonial, like like the Martians were 
a race that the Empire wants to colonize and humanize before they accept him in. So it's like, you know, he's he's letting them in, he's being fair. Yeah, like Martians should have equal rights, but at the same time, I don't think they've quite gotten over the colonizer-colonized dichotomy yet at this point in, in sci-fi history. So anyway, mm-hmm. so that's interesting, I think. Yeah, very much so. Because race is a huge part of, I mean, honestly, the first half of the book, I would even say, is that that racial tension, that colonization kind of idea, you know, the the practices of the Martians and how, like, if you said something wrong or if you didn't show up on time, like, would they kill you? They'll they'll hunt you down and kill you till the ends of the earth until they're sure that you've been destroyed. But, you know, if you blow up part of Mars, that's okay. That's an accident. So. That description sounded like, hmm, these Martians are really strange and, and bizarre people, and they're not like us. So we got to be careful with them. We got to let them in the Empire, but, you know, let's keep an eye on them. Got to step around yeah. them a little bit, too. Right, exactly. So that was just really interesting kind of uh, affair that they had with, with the nest thing. And he doesn't tell us what happened in it. He's like, I'm not going to tell you any more about this. Uh, initiation incident because I'm part of the family now and I can't tell you. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just interesting. So that brings me to the idea of the empire in the book and this style of parliamentary democratic monarchy that they had. I don't. I want to know how an American libertarian like Heinlein <laughs> ended up writing this this book that's set in a, in a universe that has a this huge bureaucratic government uh, of all of all of the different nation states that are, are made up. They have this parliament and then it's headed by this figurehead of an emperor who hasn't he doesn't really have any power but they still have to ask him whether it's okay to do things or not. It's like how did he end up writing this thing? Um, wh- what did you think about that when, when you first started reading it? Yeah, so Honestly, I was really, the politics of the book, it, honestly, they, it didn't really make as much of an impact to me as okay. the characters themselves. So, for instance, when he met the emperor, the king, or whatever. King Willem, yeah. Yeah. I was very interested with how that whole exchange went, because I was surprised, too, with how little power the king had and how uh right like casual that encounter was it was it was really strange um so he goes into the emperor's throne room they have a ceremony it's very formal to the point where he hands him like a blank uh scroll like they they literally did like here's Yeah, here, here are the, the the recommended changes to the government, your highness. With your approval, we'll we'll get to work on this right away. And he's like, oh, very well, very well. So, um, then afterwards they have like a private meeting, Mm -hmm. and that's where they actually get to talk. But what Lorenzo doesn't know is that King Willem and Bonfort were already friends. So. Willem sees through him right away. He's like, you are not John Joseph Bonford. I don't know who you are. You look just like him and you sound like him, but you're not him. Because he... <laughs> King Willem has these interesting little foibles and, and likes and dislikes. He, he likes uh, scotch and he likes electric train sets. <laughs> so 
Um, he's this powerful, rich leader, and he spends his time drinking and playing with toys. And uh, the real Bonfort thought, this is, a, this is no way for an emperor to spend his time. What a you're, waste. You're, you're yeah. Wasting your time and your energy and your intelligence. And Lorenzo's just like... about that too, apparently. Right, and he, almost to the point of being rude. And Lorenzo was like, yes, sire, no, sire, whatever you say, sire. And he's like, I, you're not him. Who are you? Uh, but he lets him get away with it when he finds out. It's like, well, I hope I hope this all works out for you. And what about this person on the list that you've recommended to me? I think we should try somebody different. Um, so he, he tries to give him a little bit of, of recommendation, which he's not supposed to do. He's supposed to stay out of politics. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I think it's very interesting that the one person that he doesn't fool is King Willem, uh, <laughs> who is a little bit cannier and smarter than we we might think originally. So just quickly about the political parties, we won't spend a lot of time on them because it, it didn't, apparently you didn't think it was uh, as big of a, an interest as the characters? Well, no, it was definitely like, I felt like it was more of like a plot driving thing than it was, uh, Right. you know what I mean? I can see that, yeah, definitely. Um, he does spend a little bit of time talking about... Um, the different parties. So when when Lorenzo gets into the Farley file and he starts reading up on Bonfort, uh, when he has to meet with the emperor, he starts learning about the political parties. And the one that Bonfort is a member of is the Expansionist Party. This was, and I can describe it actually in the book. Um, there's a nice quote that kind of describes what that is. It's. Uh, Expansionism had hardly been more than a manifest destiny movement when the party was founded, a rabble coalition of groups who had one thing in common, the belief that the frontiers in the sky were the most important issue in the emerging future of the human race. Bonfort had given the party a rationale and an ethic, the theme that freedom and equal rights must run with the imperial banner. He kept harping on the notion that the human race must never again make the mistakes that the white sub-race had made in Africa and Asia. So that's a very interesting connection he's making um, with the mistakes made by white people in what would be the distant past in the book. So they can't go into these new places and try to take over and command and colonize the way that they did before. That's Bonfort's position. Um, And that's the expansionist position. But then... When he talks about the Humanity Party, that's the opposition party, the one that had been in in power um, until this book takes place. That's the party that seeks an empire by and for humans only. They're not interested in the other intelligent races. They just want humans to be foremost uh, and above everyone else. And that party, too, uh, that's the one that for and everyone's just super wary of too because aren't they the ones that uh kidnapped him yeah it's the actionists wing of the humanity party that actually is the terrorist wing they're the ones that kidnap on so you can see kind of that Heinlein is siding with the expansionists to some degree um let's expand into space and and do whatever we can do to expand our own horizons and cooperate with everybody and try to bring them into the empire. He does mention, you know, he wants equal rights for everyone under the imperial banner. So the empire is above all, but everybody can join in if they want to. So, Well, which is interesting, though, because it's like, but what if the Martians didn't want to? What if there wasn't that opportunity to 
adopt one of them into their nest. You know, that's a like, good question. You know, what would have happened and, then? Yeah, and and that's something we probably will never know. But do you think that right. they would have uh, allowed that? Would have allowed a peaceful and understanding? Like, oh, you don't want to be a part of this. That's okay. Oh, okay. Well, you don't want to be a part. Well, we still. <laughs> If you change your minds, we're here and we're waiting for you. I have a feeling that, to be cynical, they probably just would colonize parts of Mars anyway and move on mm-hmm. um, in the name of expediency and saying, well, we we tried. We'll be here if you want us. You know where to find us. Yeah. Whereas the humanity party would just say, you know, we should just go in and wipe them out or colonize and, and enslave them and use them or whatever. So Whatever they can do to benefit us as a human race. Right, exactly. So, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, Probably something we don't have time to talk about now, but that's okay. Maybe another time. Um, So, we kind of have already gone over um, reading the Martians as a colonized race, and like Mars is a third world country, uh, and that the expansionists want to make sure that Mars has equal rights, but only if they're part of the empire. Mm -hmm. So. Anyway, there is one thing that I was thinking about, and I mentioned this to you a couple of days ago. After I finished reading the book, I had this thought. Is it possible that Dak Broadbent, who is the space captain and a voyager, as he calls himself, uh, and an associate of Bonfort, um, whose, whose title we really don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of uncertain as to exactly what he does and, and who he reports to. We know he works for Bonfort, but that's all. Um, is it possible that he and his group of associates engineer this attack on Bonfort and have him kidnapped as a way to get control of the expansionist party? Now, that is, to me, a very Heinleinian way of looking at politics. Is <laughs> like, yeah, you get more than three people in a room and somebody's going to have a conspiracy and they're going to try to get rid of somebody else. Mm-hmm. So, Lorenzo's hypnosis leads to this like cascade of his willingness to be Bonfort. So every time he gets hypnotized, he becomes more and more willing to do this job. Even though there's one guy, um, Bill Corman, who is like, no, you can't do this anymore. You're not, you're not the big guy. I want you out. And they fire him and he tries to expose him later on, but it doesn't work. Um, but is it possible that they're trying to use Lorenzo is like a Manchurian candidate, and I don't know if you're familiar with that term or not. Yeah, but explain it, though. Okay. Uh, so there was a movie in a book by Richard Condon called The Manchurian Candidate in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, essentially what it is is the Chinese, the communist Chinese, captured an American and programmed him, brainwashed him uh, into becoming their agent in Washington, and, and he ends up trying to assassinate the U.S. president. They have to give him a verbal command, though, to do that. So I'm wondering if maybe they're using Lorenzo as kind of a Manchurian candidate to, in the first place, get rid of Bonfort, and then insert Lorenzo as his substitute and feed him all the things that he needs to say and do uh, in order for their agenda to get propagated. So I don't know. I thought it was really interesting to think about. I completely, like... Because you mentioned that, and then I finished the book after we had that discussion, um, and I completely, like, see that and almost agree with it. Because yeah. as unreliable as Lorenzo is as a character, I yeah. think Dak is super, super, like, almost like, like charisma.
charismatic, like a psychopath or something, because like he knows exactly what to say, when to say yep. it. He knows when to show up in Lorenzo's room and just be like, "Oh no, you want to go home? I understand. I understand. But all this is gonna happen if you go home, but it's cool. It's fine. It's you know? fine. We'll figure it out. Don't worry." And he's like, "Well, wait a minute. I guess I could do this for a little bit while longer." I guess I'll have to be bummed for it for a while anyway. Yeah, Dak is like so. one of those people that makes you say what he wants you to say, but you feel like it's of your own accord and of your own will. Like, uh, right. I'm deciding this because that's what I need to do. But it's like, no, he just coerced you into that whole He totally mindset. did. And and, it, yeah. and it's kind of ironic if you go back to the beginning of the book, Lorenzo describing him as a hick, like coming in looking like a spaceman into the bar. It's like, who's fooling who, buddy? I think you've been, you know, yeah. fooled from the very beginning. It's like, so. when, like a politician, like, shows up at an ice cream shop in blue jeans and a t-shirt. Like, <laughs> it's like, you know, oh. like, you don't dress like that every day. You're just doing that to fit in. Yeah, exactly. So. I, I really do think that there is something more to all of that behind the scenes because we're getting it in Lorenzo's perspective, too. Right, um, right, especially exactly. Especially the, the hypnotizing, like, it just... They put him to sleep, and then he woke up, and he was cool with everything. He was like, wasn't oh, racist yeah. anymore. I'm fine. Even when I'm around Martians, I smell jungle, less perfume. Everything's cool. And like what and, we said, what else did they, you know, put into his mind? What? Yeah, exactly. We don't see what happens during the hypnosis scenes. Um, there are cuts between chapters or between sections of chapters, and then we find out, okay, this has happened, and now he's on his way to do this. And, you know, Lorenzo says once in a while, I've come a long way, and, I, you know, I had no interest in politics, but I'm starting to get interested in this stuff now. And, and Dak just, says, too, that, like, oh, I didn't write down the quote, but he essentially says something along the lines of, like, working in politics is like living. Like, to be yeah. a politician is to live. Like, he loves it. Right? Definitely. Um, let's see, what is, I have a, I have a quote here. He says, So I changed my mind, confound it. Why should an argument seem so much more logical when underlined by a whiff of jungle lust? Now this is when Penny tries to convince him to continue doing the job. Mm-hmm. Not that Penny used unfair means. She did not even shed tears. Not that I laid a finger on her, but I found myself conceding points, and presently there were no more points to concede. There is no getting around it. Penny is the world saver type, and her sincerity is contagious. So... Yeah, that's all well and good, but I don't buy that for a second. Um, he was ready to go back home. That was it. He was done with this job, and then Penny argues with him about it, and suddenly he's ready to go. So, I don't know. Lorenzo definitely does an about-face in this book. Um, and I don't think it's all his idea. <laughs> so, it, it when I thought about that, I was just like, it's possible that this was some kind of engineered takeover. And, uh, I don't know, maybe Heinlein was thinking, oh, then only, only some people will, <laughs> I guess only cynical readers will read that, but, yeah. like me, so, anyway, that's what I got for this what your, book. What are your final thoughts about it? Like, what did you feel, how did you, did you like it? I did like it, I liked it a lot. Um, I've read Heinlein before, I haven't read all of his books. Um, my favorite of his is Friday, which was much later. Now, most, most critics don't like that one. And it does have a lot of problems, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Probably because I read it when I was 14, and it made an impression on me. Um, But I think this is definitely up there. 
uh, as far as Heinlein's books that I've read. I really enjoyed it. It has politics, it has humor, it has space, it has Martians, <laughs> it has an actor down on his luck getting the job of a lifetime, uh, hypnosis, kidnapping, it's got everything. I thought it was it really, really great. It really does. It's a very entertaining story, and for like an early work of science fiction, I found myself getting through it a lot easier than I had the, the past two things that we read, or even things that I've read after it, just on my own. Right, right. It was a really, like, almost easy read. It almost was, and that's, it's deceptively easy, which is why I said earlier, you know, the, the Alfred Brester book, The Demolished Man, and They'd Rather Be Right by Clifton and Riley, they had some interesting philosophical ideas. But sometimes they were hard to get through, and, and you had to read a couple of times to see exactly what they were saying. You don't have to do that with this book. You get those really cool ideas and those um, in-depth discussions, but, but you don't have to reread it and figure out what he's trying to say because the prose is so clear and concise. Mm -hmm. So it's just a, it's a pleasure to read. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's good. So I'm going to give it, out of ten stars, I'm going to give it probably Ooh. seven. I'm going to give it a 7 too. 7 nice. out of 10. Nice. That's a pretty like good it. rating. That is a great rating. <laughs> what are we reading next? Our next book is going to be The Big Time by Fritz Lieber. Um, 1957, they did not have a novel award, so this one will be from 1958. I don't know why they didn't give an award for novel in 57, but it's just one of those things... Uh, Highland was probably so mad about it that That's what it was. They're like, oh god, if we give it to somebody else, he'll get mad too. We'll get a nasty letter. We'll get a nasty letter from Heinlein overseas. <laughs> anyway, so stay tuned, folks. We'll be back for episode four. Hopefully, you're sticking with us, and hopefully, we're getting better at this. We're trying real hard. Um, All right, yeah. Yeah. Especially as the books get more. Uh, more in depth and more. They're going to get guess, more interesting too. and much yeah. more notable and memorable. Definitely, I think we've started to get into that period now. We're going to start to in the next few. So, Very all right. Excited about it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, Follow everybody. Us on Instagram. Uh, definitely. Yeah, SciFixPod. Is that our Instagram? Sci <laughs> <laughs> yes. Dot pod. That's right. And uh, also follow us on Facebook. Twitter too. So. And Twitter, yeah. You, we're all over the interweb. Everything. All right. All right, Katie. It was good talking to you again today. See ya. See you guys.